On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except for the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with, shrie- for with shrieks and pure spirits came out of many, and many were paralyzed or, la- or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Now that for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria, he boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave them their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip um, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not come yet on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received, um, they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw the Spirit had been given at the laying of hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray for the Lord and hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road the desert road, that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man, um, had gone, uh, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way he was sitting in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran to the chariot, and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So Philip invited. Um, so he invited Philip to come and sit with him. This is the passage of the scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so that he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his um, descendants? for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began began with that very passage of scripture and told him about the good news of Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave the orders to stop the chariot. 
Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared to Astostas and traveled about, preaching um, the gospel in all of the towns until he reached Caesarea. Great success. I, I, uh, I'm training for, um, I got, got uh, into the New York City Marathon and I'm, I'm trying to train for it. Uh, really, well, yeah, I'm trying to train for it. Pay close attention to those words. I want to train for it. I love, uh, for some reason in this series, a couple of instances have come up. People that, that are my uh, training partners are shaking their heads. Um, because I haven't been training. All right, that's my full confession. Relax. Um, this isn't part of the sermon at all, but I just like that a few times in this series, people have chased down chariots, and that just gives me hope for my running career that God can take anyone, no matter how much weight they've gained in the last three years, and, and give them the speed to chase down a chariot. All right? That's the end of the sermon. Bow your heads. Just kidding. Uh, if you've been with us this summer, you, you will know we've been looking at uh, biblical accounts of revivals. Um, is a word that uh, maybe needs some unpacking for you, but uh, awakenings, uh, beautiful stories of people turning to or returning to God, and that's sweeping through uh, communities. And um, our hope has been to search through these stories to find the threads that connect them so that we can be sort of led as a church to seek that for ourselves. Our our mission statement or our, our sort of uh, vision at Trinity Grace is to join God in the renewal of, of all things, which is, uh, you know, quite an ambitious goal. But uh, we, we certainly don't want it to be that we just read about the movement of God in some other time in the pages of Scripture or we hear about God doing something uh, spectacular in another place. We want to say, God, whatever you have for us in, in our time, in this particular context, would you, would you do it in our midst? So we've been surveying these, these biblical awakenings, these revivals, Say, God, teach us to pray for these things. Teach us to, to look for the markers, to understand when you're uh, accelerating your work amongst a group of people, what that looks like, what the people are doing. Now, on some level, there's no mystery to that at all. A- any individual person uh, at any moment can respond to the invitation of God. You right now, even while I'm speaking, can turn your heart to God and, can, and pray, uh, relinquishing control, trusting him uh, for, for who he is and what he's done for you. And... Uh, Make no mistake, that, that is unbelievably significant. When one individual does that, it's often just a few people that, that are the precursor to a, a wider community being swept into the grace of God. But there is something about when God does a movement amongst a whole community, and it seems to be an accelerated work. The, the biblical word is, is a, a awakening or, or revival, a stirring of God amidst a particular people. So we're, we've been in the Old Testament throughout most of this series. We're finally arriving in the New Testament this morning. And uh, this morning we're going to be tracing sort of with our finger through the scriptures the revival from Pentecost, which is this beautiful story that we celebrate every year, the, the birth of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to do this morning is just trace a little bit uh, following Pentecost, the aftermath of what, what, what God uh, does. So I want to say this at the, at the top. Pentecost, in a, very, uh, in a very real sense, is the moment the whole scriptural account has been building towards. This is, the, this is the awakening that all the other awakenings and revivals that we've been reading about have been pointing to because now, not, not, 
people aren't just return, returning to God or, 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 or recommitting to, to the covenant. Literally, God himself has come to dwell in his people. They have, they're not just rebuilding the temple. They have become the temple. So as we, we look at the arc of redemptive history in the scriptures, we, we need to see this Pentecost moment is, is a climactic moment that the whole story has been building to. And I know most of you know this, but I just want to saturate our imaginations with what's going on here so that, so that we're, we're prepared for the reality of this story. Jesus has come. He's come as the Savior, not just as the Savior for you and your individual life. He's, he's come as, at, at the climax of a long story, he comes as the Messiah of Israel, the promised one, going all the way back to the covenant God made with Abraham. He is the promised one. He's God in human flesh. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He, come, he, he, he is the last lamb of God. So he goes to the cross. He announces the kingdom of God throughout his life, in his word, in, in his deeds, in his miracles. His miracles are saying, this is what it's like when God is in control. He's inviting people into that kingdom. And then he goes and opens up and secures a way for us to come into the kingdom by going to the cross. On the cross, what on earth is Jesus doing? He's the last lamb of God. He's absorbing the sin and brokenness of the world in himself on the cross. And he, he, he takes the full brunt and cries out at the end of his last moments on the cross to tell us that it is finished. The debt is fully paid for us to be free for us to be forgiven, right? And that's very often, the, the, when, you, when you encounter the Christian gospel, that's the first thing you hear. Christ has done everything necessary so that no matter what you have done, you can be forgiven. You are ex extravagantly, wildly loved, and no matter how broken you are or what you've done, there's, there's no distance that can't be, you can't be brought back by the redemptive love of Jesus. But we can't stop there. Christ doesn't come just to forgive us as beautiful and powerful as that is, right? Because you can get stuck in that as, as a bit of a cycle, right? You come to Jesus, you receive forgiveness, then you go right back into the same patterns and habits and for, you know, formative life that you've been living, and then you, you, you mess up in the same exact ways, and then you come back to Christ for forgiveness. And that's a cycle that many of our sort of religious lives get into a rut of. But Pentecost means... <laughs> That Jesus hasn't just come to forgive us. He's forgiven and cleansed us so that we can be called holy, so that he can literally come and fill us with his life. We serve a relational God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who in the overflow of his glory and creation makes relational beings. What does it mean that you're made in the image of God? Amongst other things, it means that you are made with a, a tremendous capacity for relational intimacy, and God longs for that relational intimacy with you, literally, to fill your life. It's not just to say your, your, your passport is stamped for, for the afterlife, and you're forgiven. No, I'm coming to dwell in your life. It's an astounding reality, and Pentecost, Pentecost is the climactic moment that celebrates that. Everything is done that's, that's necessary for you to be filled with the life of God. So, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And then he says, astoundingly, this relational God says, now this kingdom that I've just poured into your lives, that I've won for you at the cross, and you're going to, you're going to be agents of renewal. You're going to join me in the renewal of all things. My kingdom is going to move along relational lines. I want you to go into, the, into, into all the world, and literally everywhere you go, I want you to tell people that they can be reconciled to me through what Jesus has done. I want you to teach them the way that Jesus shows you in the king, of how to live the kingdom of God, and I want people to be brought in, right? This is how he says it in Acts 1. I'm going to fix this. Whew. You all right? Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. You will be those who have seen and those who tell. And the kingdom of God will move along relational lines, right? God... But we, we know the miraculous power of Jesus. He could literally have dropped himself into every first century city, done a spectacular magic show of, of miracles, drawn people to himself, and proclaimed the gospel. But he says, no, I'm sending you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And I just want you to, to feel the weight of that moving on to us as a calling, as a church. They're going to be full participants in the kingdom of God, right? No one in the kingdom of God is just a spectator, These disciples are going to join God in his, in his kingdom expanding. So they begin in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, right? 3,000 people were added to the church on the, on the first day, and they had no, no conference speaker, no leather-bound Bibles, no PowerPoint whatsoever. I had no idea God miraculously worked. And the day... The day after that, right, the, the, their community begins to gather this beautiful picture of the kingdom on earth. They're sharing things. They're praying together. And it says that the, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. They're growing and they're growing. Now, what I want to say is this brought tremendous challenges. One, just the sheer number of people, um, the different cultures that, and, and, and racial groups that were coming together. This was a spectacular experiment in grace. How on earth will these people from all these different threads of the world come together and become one family? So there are spectacular moments of, of glory and beauty and undeniable power, and then there are small, ordinary, gritty moments of just obedience and conflict resolution and figuring out how, how, do, we, how do we really practically serve the needs of our, our neighbors. The management of the church and its ministries quickly became large and a significant task, and it was beyond the abilities of those who had just proclaimed the message at the very beginning. So something happens, right? And I, I know we're moving rather quickly, but I want to, that's always the way of the kingdom of God. There are always breakthrough moments, and then there's just like reinforcement of habits. There are the moments like, like Fanny shared where you pray for someone's back to be healed, and their back is healed. And then there's other days where you start to get jealous because you think God's never hearing me anymore. He's only answering other people's prayers, right? There are glorious moments, and there are radically, radically, boringly ordinary days. So they choose deacons to help. They basically say, we've got to divide the, the work of the ministry amongst ourselves. And this is how it goes down. You may have heard this, but it's just good to, to, to go back there in our imaginations and to get some good context. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, convert to Judaism, and they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So, the kingdom of God is moving along relational lines. We're tracing 
from the moment of Pentecost, we're tracing this awakening, we're tracing this revival. And now the story is going to shift and it's going to focus on the first two of those deacons mentioned. Stephen is the, is the sort of central character of the next story, and then, and then we have Philip. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, becomes the first martyr of the church. Facing death, he courageously proclaims Jesus and is the, is the first person killed for, for faith in Christ. And we know that Saul, who eventually becomes Paul, is standing there, and he begins this widespread persecution of the church. And then this is where our text picks up, right? So that was all preliminary so that our imaginations are poised and ready for, for, for this moment. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the, the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Jumeria. Judea and Jumeria. Yes, great. Judea and Samaria. All right, so... The church is immediately threatened, right? It's in its infancy. It's being broken up at the, the, the core of this beautiful community, right? Sometime this afternoon, go back and read the descriptions of the, of the Christian community in Acts 2 and Acts 4. There's no community you would rather be a part of than that community. They're, they're, they're meeting every day. They're taking care of one another. They're meals in each other's homes. They're praying for each other. They're seeing miraculous salvation. It's like the very best church community ever. And now it's being broken up and split apart. It's being scattered. And yet in the midst of that, we see the glory of discomfort. That's the first thing I kind of want to know as we trace the outflow of this awakening, the glory of discomfort. I just want to focus on that phrase for a minute. This may be one of the things that we're not very eager to talk about when it comes to the movement of God in our world, but it certainly is a reality that if we're not willing to face, we're going to become very quickly disillusioned with a life of following Jesus. It is persecution that moves the church out of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And it's not just like, it's not a great missions conference and a wonderful speaker and everyone's motivated and so they're going to Judea and Samaria. It's persecution that scatters the church, right? So no matter how challenging it is, here's something that God is asking us to do. He's asking us to trust him with our, with our pain. He's asking us to trust him with our pain and in our pain, right? So easy to mention, right? Christians become a little bit like Hallmark cards. Sometimes we get a little too trite with, with these realities. And right, someone's going through ex- extravagant amounts of pain, and, and we, just, we, we just give them a simple sort of cookie-cutter spiritual solution. The scripture doesn't do that. It's incredibly robust in how it deals with every level of the, of the human reality, physical, spiritual, emotional. But we can't escape this reality. James 1 says something absurd, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. What, is, what, what on earth is that about? Is God asking us to be those who enjoy pain? I don't think so. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There's something about the way God can work, even in the midst of our pain, our discomfort, our disappointment, our scattering, our, our broken dreams, the, the, the reality that our lives are, are fragmented and hurting, that God can work even in the midst of those things to add to us maturity so that we're not, we're not lacking anything. Now, as a concept, that's easy to hear. But it's incredibly difficult to apprehend by faith and, and live into, to actually be someone who's, who can consider it pure joy when we're facing trials. But we have to remember examples like this. It is the persecution that moves the church from Jerusalem and moves them towards fulfilling their mission as love. God's not asking us to be crazy. 
But we have to acknowledge the, the reality that Scripture over and over again says our world is one that is in tremendous conflict. That's so important as a backdrop for understanding something like James 1. Consider it pure joy when you, when you face trials. If the kingdom, is advanced, if the kingdom of God is advancing in the world, is it, it is advancing against many rival kingdoms, the small kingdoms of our own selfishness, the larger kingdoms of systemic evil in the world of war and racism and, 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 the, and the brokenness. If the kingdom of God is advancing, it is advancing in contested space. And, and that, that means comfort can't be our highest aim. There is actual glory in discomfort. There is a place for, for God's character, his face to shine through in, in moments where there is discomfort and where there is pain. All the way back to Genesis, right? The curse. All right, we, we, we don't have time to, 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 to go into this, but basically God says the, the, the world's not going to yield its fruit in the same way that it used to. There's going to be thorns and thistles. Literally even just growing fruit from the ground, grow, growing produce from the ground is, is going to be much more difficult than it was because we need to know that this world is broken and that it needs redemption. And some of the pain that we experience in the world is a reminder of that. It's a reminder of the thorns and thistles reality of the world that we live in. And it's, it's no insignificant thing that when Jesus goes to the cross, he's given a crown of thorns. He is absorbing the brokenness of this world. But it is a reality that we have to contend, contend with. And we have to learn as a church with discerning eyes, with prayers of faith, with patting each other on the back, with gathering in each other's homes to remind each other that there is, there is sometimes beautiful glory and discomfort. In a fallen world, comfort certainly does not always equal blessing. If you're comfortable in a fallen world, Sometimes that's a problem. <laughs> Sometimes we, the thing we actually need is disruption. The thing we actually need is to, is to, be, to be woken up, right? There's a biblical track, track record for this all the way back in the Israel story. You have Joseph sold into slavery because his brothers are jealous because his dad made him a fantastic coat. Remember that? And he had great dreams about how they were all going to bow down to him. They sell him into slavery. He, he gets out of this pit. He, he gets sold into slavery. He works in this house. Then he gets wrongfully accused of sexual assault. He gets thrown in jail. He helps people in jail. He t- says, remember me when you get to Pharaoh's house. And they forget him. He's left to rot in jail. And then eventually, finally, he's brought out of jail right at the moment when he's able to become the Pharaoh's right-hand man and, and help provide for an entire empire in a famine through his integrity, his management. And he ends up saving the life of his family. And we have this sort of climactic moment where his brothers come back after they thought he was dead and they realize he's the one that's keeping them alive in the Pharaoh's house. And, and he says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's just a theme that shows up over and over again. There's no greater example of it than the cross of Jesus where something awful and horrific is actually working redemption. So pastorally, I just want to say to you that your pain and difficulty are not signs that God is not with you. It might just be signs that we live in a broken world and there is great discomfort. But the things that are meant for evil, God is, is able to work them for good. Uh, the last thing I'll, almost the last thing I'll say on this <laughs> is a little summary from Ernest Baker that I, I thought was just helpful. I think he just says, says it really well. There are troubles and there are, that are the works of enemies, of evil men, of the devil, of death itself, for death is an enemy. And they are intended to harass us in the work of God, to wean us from it, to embitter us against it, to reveal to the scoffing, unbelieving world that faith is a matter of circumstances and sunshine. 
but that it withers in the storms and cannot help us in times of trial. And God gives us liberty for all these thi- God gives liberty for all these things to come to us because he can make all these things serve an opposite purpose. He can turn all the devil's weapons against himself. That's a, that's a helpful reality. We need that in our, in our arsenal as, as part of the backbone of our understanding of the world and how to be followers of Jesus in the world. It's, in, it's tremendously problematic if you believe the American church lie that, that gets put out so often that God is essentially trying to make our lives comfortable. Because then you look at like anyone who follows God in scripture and that just doesn't seem to happen. In a fallen world, comfort does not always need, does not always mean blessing. There are times when we need not to feel at home. There are times when we need to be comf- uncomfortable with the way things are. A.W. Tozer, I love how he says, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. When we're just trying to maintain the status quo of our own comfort, we're in a dangerous spot. We need disruption. All right, point one. All right, we did it. Great job, everyone. Just three more of those to go. Excited? Just kidding. They're all going to be so much shorter, and I'm going to talk faster. Does that sound good? Woo! Okay. Persecution sends the church out. Philip responds to this moment. He was initially empowered to wait tables for God. And then as the church is scattered, he's been faithful in that and he becomes an evangelist. It says, verse four, those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits, came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. This guy wasn't an apostle. He was hired to wait tables so the apostles could do their apostle thing and, and, and pray and seek God more. He, he, and yet he has the ministry of Jesus. Everyone who has trusted in Christ and been brought into the family of God through salvation and empowered by the Holy Spirit, every one of you have the ministry of Jesus. He's doing the things that Christ did, just like Christ said, right? And so we see several types of responses through the rest of the chapter, right? We are commissioned to carry this message of Jesus. We should not expect it to be easy. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be scattering. There's going to be pain and difficulty related to the, the brokenness and fallenness of this world. But here's the thing. If we sort of slowly just become a church that's about... Um, our own spiritual walk. And by that, we mean like not committing the worst sins that we used to commit and trying to kind of just like go to work and, and live life together. But we forget this incredibly powerful outlet of love that we're called to. If we, if we lose the reality that we're called to share Jesus, we lose our coherence as a community. We lose our connection to Jesus the head. We're not just about nurturing our own wellness so that we can be fat, happy Christians, <laughs> We are on a mission, an urgent mission of love to share the message of Jesus, to be those who in word and deed communicate what Christ is really like. The church has this extravagantly high calling. People are meant to be able to come to Trinity Grace Park Slope and find out what God is really like. People are meant to be able to get near your life and see what what Jesus is really like because he's alive in you. The kingdom moves along relational lines. The moment we lose that outflow of sharing Jesus because we've been cowering because of the pluralism of our Word or, world or we're not sure that, that proselytizing is acceptable anymore and we just lose the joy of actually talking about who our Redeemer is, we lose this, a, a huge, huge section of what it means to be a Christian is lopped off and we're imbalanced. We must share Christ. That will be one of the fruits of God reviving our hearts again. 
as we become those who can articulate with our words and articulate with our actions what Jesus is really like. And the rest of the chapter says, when someone hears this message of Jesus, there's, there's, there's always conflict of the heart. You have those who aggressively oppose. Those are the ones who run them out of Jerusalem. You have those who are curious but conflicted. You have Simon, the sorcerer from Hogwarts. And he's curious about Jesus, but he's conflicted. And then we have those who are ready to respond in faith, this Ethiopian treasurer. It's like similar to Jesus' accounts of the different types of soil. Some soil you're going to throw is going to land on hard ground. It's going to get snatched by birds. Some is going to land in, in shallow ground, and it's going to sprout up quickly, but it's going to be scorched. Some is going to land in the thorns, and it's going to be choked out. But some, every now and then, by God's sovereign like seed guiding and soil preparing, a, a seed is going to fall on good ground. It's going to grow up, and there's going to be great joy. So what's the last sign that you held up with a number on it? Just tracking where we are. Oh, that's a big number. All right. Let's skip a few things. Um, I want to get to the center of each of these accounts. Um, But basically, this man, Simon, right? He was a powerful, influential man. And I don't know exactly what it means when it says that he was a sorcerer. Um, This is one of those things. It's a head scratcher, like how he was was operating. There's many jokes that I want to make right now, which I shan't make for the sake of time. And we will go forward. But he's curious about the movement of Jesus, about the message of Jesus, but he's also deeply conflicted. And we, we all know this reality, even in Fanny's testimony, right? The word of Jesus goes out and people hear it and they're curious about it, but they're also conflicted. What would it mean for me to, to actually surrender this? What would it mean for me to give up control of my life? Actually, that's the question. What would it mean for me to stop being the primary curator of my soul's deepest needs and to give that job to God? I think I know what I need best <laughs> best. And I think I know how to go out and get it. What if I actually surrender? I'm trusting that God is such a good father that he's going to forgive my sins and bring me into the family and meet the deepest needs of my life, even if sometimes that means discomfort. And that's really confusing because I hate discomfort. But that's actually the question, the conflict of our heart. Are we willing to cede control to the love of God? Simon does something different. He says, I'll add this little bit of the Jesus message. This is really fascinating. You guys are amazing. I just want to walk around and watch you do the miracles and stuff. And then at some point, he's like, seriously, how much does it cost to get in on this? And Peter says, you know, may your money perish with you. You thought you could buy the gift of God. You're missing the entire point. You're trying to to add Jesus in to improve your stature, like to bring Jesus along as a life coach and say, I'll show up on Sundays and get a few tips for, for how to feel better about my life. But this is my life. I'm doing my thing. And God's cutting to the heart. Right at Pentecost, that's the, that's the phrase that was used. When the Spirit came, they were cut to the heart. Not adding a religious activity to the periphery. They were cut to the heart. And we don't get a sense in the actual account of Acts 8 what happens to Simon, but the historical account doesn't look great for him. After Hogwarts, the church fathers remember Simon the Sorcerer as a man named Simon Magnus. He was a leading heretic in the early church. Justin Martyr uh, from 165 said he was a Samaritan, and he, he claimed uh, that his countrymen revered Simon Magnus as, as someone like a god, that he, he uh, was, was trying to get godlike attributes for himself. Arrhenius in 180 declared that Simon Magnus was the father of Gnosticism and attributed a sect of the Simonians to him. But even more damaging is a 
second century in the Acts of Peter uh, with its extensive descriptions of how Simon Magnus corrupted Christians in Rome with his heresies, and he was repeatedly sort of challenging the apostles to like magic duels. Which, man, isn't it a shame we don't have more of that now? Like, maybe not. All right, let's keep going. Someone came in and was like, let's use God's real magic duel right now. And which one of you would volunteer for that? Because I totally do not want to do that. You know what? We don't have a lot of time. Let's keep going, guys. Stop distracting me. As the movement of God spreads, there are all types of responses. But we have to learn from the warning of Simon Magnus, right? The half measures, the Jesus by just superficial addition that doesn't cut to the heart, the sort of divided confessions where we want, we want the, the, the benefit to our lives, but we're not willing to surrender control. There needs to be a warning in our hearts that rings out from this passage. The last thing I want to mention is there's immense joy in sharing in God's fruit. It says when Philip shows up in Samaria and he does the ministry of Jesus, the city was full of joy. And I just... We rush past phrases like that in the scriptures all the time, but I just want you to settle on it for a second, right? What does God want in the world? Like, what do you think of him? In the inner monologue that no one hears, what do you really think of God? What do you think he thinks of you? Right, so often we, we have some version of disappointed in both directions, when, si- when Philip shows up in a place that hadn't heard the message of Jesus and he, and he lives like Jesus lived and he speaks like Jesus lived, what happens is immense joy breaks out. When, when John is talking about proclaiming what Christ is really like, he said, I have to do this so that our joy can be complete. Do you realize that the God of the universe is concerned with you having full, wild, complete joy? The way he says it is, I've come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. That, 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 that there is a, a rival kingdom in the world that wants to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. And the, and the kingdom of God shows up in Samaria and there's joy. Do you believe God wants that for you? Do you believe that it comes at the cost of surrendering control? Philip had learned to listen to the voice of God and he was willing, even absurdly at times, to go where God led. He... He shows up with this Ethiopian treasurer who's leaving Jerusalem. Who's, he runs down the chariot. God bless him. He, he tracks him down. He hears him reading from, from the prophet Isaiah. And he, he sits down with him. He, he asks the right questions and he listens. He, he starts right where the man is. He says, where, where are you, right? This is one of the, the things the church... I, I feel like so pretentious <laughs> saying, when I was with the Pope this spring... Um, <laughs> But I told you this story. We had this unbelievable opportunity to go and, and meet with Pope Francis for, for several hours in the Vatican. And one of the things that stuck with me from all the things he said was he very gently and quietly said, it is a privilege to proclaim the message of Jesus. He was giving advice to younger pastors was the question he was responding to. He said, but you need to learn the ministry of the ear. I just thought that was so beautiful. A man with like such authority and power to speak and literally they're going to write it down and say, this is, God has d- delivered this message. And he said, you need to learn the ministry of the ear. And I love that Philip begins by asking questions and listening. 
as part of our calling to share the message of Jesus at Trinity Grace Park Slope, at Trinity Grace Park Slope, we have to learn the ministry of the ear. Learn how to really listen to people, to enter into their story. It's cru- Pope Francis said it's crucifying, it's humbling to drop the propulsion of your own narrative for a moment and just simply enter into someone else's story and really envelop in it and really hear, really understand the complexities of where someone's coming from. And then from that place, Philip says, from that place, you proclaim Jesus to him from a place of understanding where he really was, of really listening, he proclaimed Jesus to him. And and this Ethiopian treasurer is so excited. He said, look, here's water. What can prevent me from being baptized? And they go down, Philip's orders, they stop the chariot, and Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. When he came up out of the water, this had to be a shock. The Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. I just imagine this Ethiopian eunuch, hair dripping, shaking his head. This guy just chased my chariot down, then vanished. What is going on? But he went away rejoicing that his life had been transformed by the message of Jesus. Now, Here is literally the very last thing. Final note on Philip. I was having dinner with a friend this past two weeks ago, and um, he pulled out his journal, and he read to me from Acts 8, and I knew I was potentially going to be preaching on Acts 8 coming up. And he said, you know where else Philip is mentioned? And he had in his journal uh, Acts 21. So Philip waits tables, then he becomes an evangelist, ministry of Jesus, great joy, dramatic conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Then he's not mentioned again in the book of Acts until one sentence in Acts 21, and it's years and years later. At the end of this chapter, Philip gets to Caesarea, so he works his way all the way to this coastal city, and then he's not mentioned again. What's he doing? Well, we don't know. There's no record of it. Verse 7 of Acts 21 says this, It's recounting Paul the Apostle as he's on his missionary journeys. We continued our voyage voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I was in a pretty discouraged moment at this dinner and was remembering some of the early days of Trinity Grace Park Slope and like, the fast growth and, and some of the glorious moments, basically. And my friend said, maybe God's asking you to put your head down and be faithful and, 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 and there will be glorious moments and then there'll be very ordinary days of just obedience. That's the way the kingdom moves. And I was strangely encouraged by that. And then I, I noticed that he had four kids and that all of them knew and spoke the word of God. They all prophesied. I thought, what a, what a legacy, what a legacy. This man was used by the Spirit of God to, to build the church, to advance the mission, and then he built a generational legacy of faithfulness amongst his family. He made disciples of his kids. And I thought, that's a tremendously beautiful and high calling. Not just to be there for the glorious moments, but to be there in the ordinary early moments of the morning and late moments of the night and ordinary school pickup moments, the, the, the drudgery of everyday life in a conflicted and fallen world to show up with faithfulness and trust for Jesus in those moments. And what happens is a legacy of faithfulness can be built and that his four daughters all knew God and prophesied. They spoke the word of the next generation speaking the word of God because of the faithfulness of this man, Philip. It wasn't just the glorious, spectacular moments with the Ethiopian eunuch. It was all the ordinary days in between that weren't recorded at all. 
that's revival as well. That's awakening as well. So we're going to go to the table now, and I have three questions for you. What is your perspective on your pain? Right? The discomfort that you're feeling, the suffering that you might be going through. Are you anywhere close to the James one? Consider it pure joy. Consider the reality. This is a fallen and broken world. And for the, for the kingdom of God to advance, there's going to be some discomfort. Second, do you have the message of Jesus in your bones? Is it on your lips? Is it in your life? Does anyone know more about who God is because of your life? I say that with no guilt, but I want to call us to that as a church. Let's be those who trumpet the message of Jesus with our words and our deeds. When we do that, we can know that results are going to vary. There's going to be glorious moments and there's going to be ordinary moments. So how is God leading you to respond? Perhaps it's to trust him with the pain you're going through. Perhaps it's to commit again, to let the the reality of Christ shine forth in your life in word and deed. Perhaps it's to say, I know I'm in a season where I just need to be faithful in the ordinary moments until God takes me to the next breakthrough. And that is significant work of God. Let me pray for you and ask that the Holy Spirit would be so specific as he leads us in our response. Uh, Then I'll give you a few moments of silence to reflect on that, and then I'll call us to the communion table in just a few moments. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for your mercy that's new every morning. I pray for our whole church that you would forgive us for our sins, cleanse us from any way that we have wandered to rival God's, and that you would just stir our hearts with zeal to be those people who carry the message of Jesus, that we would be those who can face obstacles with courage to share the message of Jesus. And we would not be dismayed or surprised by pain, but we would trust you with, trust you with it. Lead us by the Holy Spirit, Lord, in these moments of response. I pray in these next moments of silence that you would just speak so specifically to each person's heart in the way they are meant to respond. And I pray we would have courage and faith as we obey those promptings from your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.